If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Benjamin Franklin is one of the most famous names in American history. A scientist, writer and influential figure in the formation of the United States, Franklin also enslaved people and before embracing the revolutionary cause, did all he could to enhance the British Empire. He's the latest subject of the acclaimed filmmaker Ken Burns, who's made some of the biggest history documentaries of recent years. From his award-winning miniseries on the US Civil War to a 10-part exploration of the Vietnam conflict. Ken joined Eleanor Evans to talk about how he tackles such histories, where he finds the voices that bring the past to life, and how he approached the figure of Franklin. So Ken, thanks so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast. And the subject of your latest project is a well-known name to many. Um, anyone who knows the slightest about history of the United States will probably pluck his name from somewhere, even if they don't know exactly what he did. Um, and plenty of us will probably think we know quite a lot about Benjamin Franklin. But when you approached this project, what were you expecting to find? You know, I don't remember, Eleanor, and thank you so much for having me. Um, I kind of don't remember the person who started this project from the person at the end, and, and that's the way you always want it to be. I suppose I was burdened with the same um, superficial 
information that most people have that he was, you know, the lightning experiment and the lightning strikes the, the kite that didn't happen. Um, and that he had something to do with the revolution, but he was older than most. Um, what's so great is to discover his centrality to the 18th century full stop. <laughs> that is to say his lifespan is from 1706 to 1790. So it's, it's there. Um, he is in America, the most compelling personality of the 18th century. He's our best writing stylist. He is the, um, Isaac Newton of the world for the 18th century, not just the United States. He's the funniest person on our continent. Um, he is a, a, a beautiful writer. He is the most important diplomat in American history. He is an odd aging revolutionary. Uh, he is having owned other human beings, um, becomes an abolitionist at the end of his life. He is constantly remaking himself. And in the United States, the $100 bill, which is the biggest bill that's in circulation, has his image on it because he has always been this example of upward mobility, of striving, of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, of making it on your own. And he gets adopted by people who are very much into that almost libertarian spirit of, of doing for yourself. What they've neglected and left behind is the equal side of Franklin, who always felt that that needed to be tethered to civic engagement. And that's what makes him so interesting. The inventions that he did, numerous, life-saving, helpful around the world, he held without any patent. He was always looking for ways to improve the general health at the same time he was making himself a wealthy man so that he could retire to scientific pursuits in his 40s. I mean, it's a really wonderful story and you begin to understand his centrality. He is, he is a huge Anglophile. He spends a lot of time in Britain. I think if his wife hadn't hadn't been afraid of sea travel, he would have, he would have, we, we would have only known him for his scientific things. He would not have become a revolutionary, but a lot of things made him happen. He was the most famous American. So when the, the Continental Congress needed somebody to try to go negotiate with the French, there was only one person on earth that kind of fit the bill of, of who might possibly succeed in an impossible mission. And he did. Yes. Well, I hope we can dig into a little more of those astonishing abilities in a short while. But a thread that uh, runs so strongly throughout your your film, I think the historian Stacey Schiff says something like, whatever you say about Benjamin Franklin, you can say the opposite as well. Can we talk a little more about those contradictions? Yes. You know, um, our work is famous for kind of tolerating contradictions contradictions and and not having everything be binary, you know, essentially promoting that conventional wisdom or the superficial knowledge that many of us have. Um, someone once said to the American journalist, um, I.F. Stone, uh, an acolyte who was a fairly left-leaning uh, journalist, why he could possibly admire Thomas Jefferson, who owned other human beings. And he just stared at him and he said, because history, meaning life, History is not melodrama, but tragedy. To say complicated human being is to be redundant. And so what we have in all of our investigations for almost the last 50 years has practiced a kind of 
ability to tolerate the contradictions. Wynton Marsalis in jazz said to us, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. And that coexists in all of us. Um, extensive greed and generosity, purience and puritanism, all of that kind of coexists between and obviously within us in a psychological dimension. So in Benjamin Franklin, in our heroes, if you will, and I mean that in a Greek sense, these contradictions and flaws and strength are all played out on a big, big stage, but they're all intended to remind us mere mortals that we hold the same set of cards, maybe just not so brightly lit, and that we also are responsible, as Franklin felt, to improve all the time. He was, you know, someone, several people in the film say the great, his greatest invention might be himself. But that invention was not uh, something of, of, of a lie or of a whole cloth. It was a perpetual curiosity about self-improvement, not just for his for society, his fellow human beings, but for himself. And he really lived it so that he ends up his life an abolitionist, having held slaves, having taken advertisements for the sale of human beings, having taken advertisements, offering rewards for the return of runaway human beings. Um, He's, you know, he's got a disparate family is everything to him and, and in some ways nothing to him. It's, it's so complicated and so interesting that I think it's, it's just human behavior writ large. And from those large, like Greek mythology, you know, Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strength. We mere mortals can imbibe some, I think, really important lessons. Yes, I I couldn't agree more in terms of that message of tolerance, but I'm interested to hear from you on what sort of reception do you expect when looking at figures like Franklin in all their contradictions? Do you think it's an approach that's broadly welcomed these days, or do you expect something different? Well, I don't know what to expect, Eleanor. It's a good question. We make the films we want to make. We work in public broadcasting, so there's not a suit telling us, oh, soften this or make this less. And I think after nearly 50 years, most Americans uh, who might be tempted to watch will know that what's interesting about our work is all the things they thought they knew that, or that they learned that they didn't know. And that's exciting. You know, soldiers in Vietnam telling us our Vietnam series told them things. World War II veterans before they passed away saying, thank you. I was in the Pacific theater. I had no idea what was going on. I went, I moved from one little spot of land in in this biggest of all oceans to another little spot of land. Thank you for putting it together. And, And same with those in the European theater. And so I, I like that. I don't make films about what I already know and then tell you what you should know. That last time I checked, that's called homework. You know, there's no test next Tuesday. Um, This is sharing with you our process of discovery and all of the things that our deep dive over many years has given us. And then our way of, because we're storytellers, not historians. I just happen to work in history, but history is made up of the word story plus high, and high is a pretty good way to begin a story or at least some human contact, is just figuring out what can survive and what can't, how to do the deepest possible dive, to not be afraid of the contradictions. I have a neon sign in the editing room in cursive, uh, which says it's complicated. 
And, you, you know, filmmakers, myself included, you know, you got a scene that works. You just want to leave it alone and not touch it. But we're constantly opening up scenes that are perfect and making them less perfect because there's more contradictory information. And sometimes every once in a while you're rewarded and they're, and, and they, you make it even better by doing that. And I, I love that. I love that exploration. So um, I think all relationships that are real have to tolerate these kinds of contradictions. If you're a parent with a child, you have to understand you don't win every battle. Um, you, you, life is, is complicated. If you are healthy yourself psychologically, you've come to accept and understand disparate aspects of your own character. So I think in the telling of stories, it's incumbent upon us to just enlarge that and that you do not diminish the tapestry by lifting up and the carpet and seeing the dirt underneath it. In fact, it may put it in even more striking and bolder relief. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I think something that struck me throughout is the actions that we know him for, or think we know him for, his revolutionary activities. They're such a slow burn, aren't they? And how, how it is that he becomes this revolutionary figure. Can we talk a little more about that, that journey? Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, as many people say in the film, the, you know, revolution is a young man's game. And um, here is Franklin, whose own son, is older than Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and Patrick Henry and some of the firebrands, the Southern firebrands, I think maybe even uh, older than John Adams. And um, he's already lived a lifetime. He's the best writer. He's the printer. He's a businessman. He's done numerous scientific experiments that have made him the Newton, the Isaac Newton of his century, the 18th century. He's gone into politics in a kind of local way. He's uh, been a postmaster. He's traveled. He's done some envoy work in London, represented the interests of first Pennsylvania and then other colonies. Um, so he's and he's and he's a devoted and dedicated Briton. He wants to. He sees the American colonies as the sort of the the balance the, of of the entire British Empire, and that he's working overtime, struggling to try to quell the passions on both sides. Those who are impatient in London at the impertinent upstarts who aren't doing exactly what we're telling them to do, and the, uh, the increasingly radicalized uh, uh, colonists who are uh, f frustrated with the lack of representation and the taxation that's being imposed to help, frankly, just refill the coffers emptied by what we call the French and Indian War and what the rest of the world calls the Seven Years' War, a global struggle that played out in, in large but not singular part in, in North America between the French, the native uh, allies of the French, and, and the British and their American uh, subjects. It's hugely interesting that, that an accident of trying to hold things together gives him an an experience that radicalizes him in the extreme. If he if his wife had traveled across the Atlantic, he would have spent his whole life as a Briton and we'd known him for his scientific uh, achievements. He thinking that he could help calm passions on both sides surreptitiously leaks to the newspapers the letters of a friend of his, a politician in Massachusetts, 
they do the opposite. It was a huge political miscalculation on the part of a person who is usually astute at this sort of thing. And he was forced to admit that he was actually the one who had done this, betrayed a friend, a postmaster who had read letters and shared letters. And he was brought before the Privy Council in Whitehall in a room called the cockpit where Henry VIII used to have cockfights. And he was excoriated for over an hour by Alexander Wedderburn, an upwardly mobile, ambitious uh, lord who was um, a prosecutor. And, and Franklin remains stock still and people are jeering at him and, and, and humiliating him. And all of his dreams of, of, of fortunes of high position within the, the the government and with regard to relations with the colonies um, is evaporating before him. And he is beginning to see that his friends who he's tried to calm down were right. And so as the historian in our film, H.W. Brand says, the scholar, you know, he walks into the cockpit of Britain and walks out an American. And he is the person who has invented the idea of an American. He hasn't really realized it. He hasn't taken a patent. In fact, he doesn't take a patent on anything he invents. But several decades before, he's borrowing, ironically, from native uh, groups, the Iroquois Confederation, the Haudenosaunee, their idea of adjudicating dis, uh, disputes with a union. And so he proposes an Albany plan of union and famously draws a picture of a segmented snake and, and the slogan, join or die. Everybody thinks, oh, come on, Ben, this is way too radical. But decades later, it becomes a rallying cry of the American Revolution. So he is seen as a postmaster that even though the interests of a Georgian in the far south of the colonies or someone from New Hampshire, as I am speaking to you from, um, could also share many things in common. So he's the first to see the us in the U.S. And no one has ever yet said United States yet. They don't say it until, you know, uh, early July of 1776. And it's, um, it's a wonderful story of him and his journey. Yes, and as we've come to expect from your um, your films, we can see a lot of those images as we're learning from the historians. The snake cut up is is there in black and white for everyone to learn from. But um, he's also he's a man of words. He's a man of wit. And I wanted to ask about you've got a wonderful voice for Benjamin Franklin. How do you go about finding a voice for <laughs> for, for such a man? Well, I don't know how far and wide the actor Mandy Patinkin has traveled. Um, he is beloved in, in our country for a number of reasons. Um, he has most recently been the, the stalwart supporter of Kerry uh, in the Homeland series. And he's the boss, the, the control, and as Saul Berenson, he's great. And in fact, I had my youngest daughter sitting with me on the couch. She should not have been watching Homeland. I was covering her eyes at bad stuff. I was trying to explain statecraft and spycraft and geopolitical things with Afghanistan and Russia and all of this sort of stuff. And, and the, suddenly I had this epiphany, Mandy would be great voice of Franklin. So I reached out to him in COVID. He said, yes. And he, he was marvelous. And he called me up after he saw the finished film. He said, I had no idea. I, I consider this one of the three most important things I've ever done. And I thought, oh, he's going to name Saul. He said, um, Sunday in the Park with George, the Stephen Sondheim musical, which he was hugely important in help birthing. And then his role as Montoya in The Princess Bride. 
And then he said this. And I said, what about Saul? You know, he goes, that was important, but not, not as good as this. I've never, I've, I've used my entire life, Eleanor, first person voices to compliment a third person narrator and use some of the best American actors, Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, you know, I don't need to say Julie Harris. I don't need to say any more, but Gregory Peck and Paul Newman and many, many people. Uh, uh, Jeremy Irons, Derek Jacobi, uh, Alan Rickman, you know, people that have read for me over, over the decades uh, and, and so well uh, and so beautifully and so generously. No one had a style. I mean, you can imagine when Meryl Streep reads, take one of this quote, you go, boy, that was really great. What if you did this? She goes, oh, that's a good idea. She's a lovely human being. And then she does this and makes it even better than you possibly thought. And she goes, well, wait, could I try it this way? And then that third take is even better. Mandy just put himself into the position of Benjamin Franklin. He would talk to himself. And so instead of there being take one and take two and take three, there might've been 40 different times in which he'd start the first sentence 10 times. And I just looked at the editors and I said, all yours, you know, I wasn't going to just be able to choose it on the spot as I normally do, uh, which, which was the best take or parts of takes. But he, he put himself into it. He, you know, he realized, oh, this is about gratitude. I need to be grat. I'm so, thank you. Thank you so much. And then he would, he would read a sentence. He goes, no, no, no. He'd back up and he started again. It was so lovely and so magical. I was sitting right here where I'm talking to you in the loft of my barn and he was in, in some studio and his son was running the tape and you never know what you're going to get. And it, he makes him come alive. And while there are many other voices in the film, uh, first person voices, it's basically a conversation between the script written by my longtime uh, collaborator, Dayton Duncan, and um, by the uh, by the voice of Mandy Patinkin as Benjamin Franklin. It's a It's just a wonderful interchange and give and take between those two forces, if you will. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There is no American, besides maybe Abraham Lincoln, who is more willing to freely admit that this process of life was about a self-journey of self-improvement, not of eliminating those contradictions, but coming to terms with them and improving on them. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Yes, definitely. And I think a point to make, which so many of the historians do in your film, is that it really does bring him to life because we know an awful lot about his personal life and his family life as well, don't we? We do indeed. And I always felt that from my very first film, I used a chorus of first person voices to compliment the third person because I felt that that third person narration was just telling you, even if you were quoting and paraphrasing. But if you read a love letter, you you could understand a little bit more about the style and articulation. You could make the people who seem so far away from us closer to us, realize they are a lot like us. Newspaper accounts, uh, you know, things that were contradictory. I, I did a film on the Civil War and after the Gettysburg Address, which is considered the greatest speech in the American English language, you know, I think fans of, of Winston Churchill would have and and Shakespeare would have some, some something to say there. Um, the Chicago newspaper said the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States. So they didn't like the Gettysburg Address. And so you can make history come alive in a way. And, and in the case of Franklin, he is examining himself all the time. He is self-critical. He's Socratic first about himself, but he also has grand designs for society. He realizes that you can, you have to have that individual freedom, but you have to have the collective freedom, not just what I want, but what we need. And he's always engaged in civil, civic discourse and the creation of, of organizations all of that. I mean, they're, they've been working, they've been editing his papers for decades and they've still got several years to go. And there are something like volume 43. There's a lot of evidence of, of what he wrote out there. And so it's funny, it's sad, it's poignant, it's, it's instructive about who he is. And so if you've got someone who can inhabit uh, the way uh, Mandy does, and in the case of our narrator, Peter Coyote, reading the words principally of Dayton Duncan, our scriptwriter, you've got the possibility of waking the dead, of making the past come alive, of not making it past, but making it present. And that's, you know, William Faulkner, one of our great literary uh, heroes of the 20th century, hist- said history is not was, but is. And I, I think, you know, we, we, we bandy around these superficial things, um, you know, history repeats itself. It never has. We're condemned to repeat what we don't remember. The thought is lovely and important, but it doesn't apply to what happens. Um, Mark Twain is supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, you know, and that comes closest. Human nature doesn't change. And, you know, Ecclesiastes says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. That suggests human nature is the same. And um, if you are able to bore deeply into a life, however many centuries away, you have the possibility of speaking directly to our present time. And I'm always surprised at the 
motifs, the echoes, the rhymes of any film I've done have, have echoed every film, you know, nearly 40 PBS I've put on, um, that, that they all speak to the present moment in some way. And so I think Franklin addresses this tension that we have. You have it in, in, in Britain um, right now. It's, it's so great uh, in politics and in Brexit and in all these things in the United States, of course, uh, from the last president and, and you know, this the sense of what truth is between these, these tensions of, of what I want and what we need. And Franklin is, is able to marry them in a way that's positive and offers to me a refreshing um, kind of antidote to all of the pessimism and all of the sort of hand-wringing that until the Russians invaded Ukraine, uh, Western democracies seem to be experiencing. That that all makes so so much sense. And, and going back to um, your exploration of his contradictions, uh, as you've already talked about, um, he did own enslaved people and he worked on treaties that disenfranchised native people as well. How self-reflective was he on these um, inescapable faults from our, our position looking back? I don't know where he got with the question of native people. He had a kind of romanticized version, which Americans have always done about native people. At the same time, they were either dispossessing them of their land or slaughtering them or corralling them into reservations that didn't look anything like their original homelands. And so uh, we're pretty hypocritical and have always been uh, uh, about that. And I don't think Franklin really escaped it. He talked about the lovely white and the red meaning the Native Americans and the whites, meaning Englishmen. He thought Germans were swarthy. But he's um he evolves in a in a in a really good way about African Americans, about black people. He does, as you say, own people and it's in, it's unforgivable and inexcusable to own three hundred as Thomas Jefferson at least did, and to own three is no different. You know, if you murder three people or 300 people, you know, obviously 300 is worse, but they're all bad. And this is the murder of the potentiality of a human being. And that is inexcusable. And we still wrestle with this, not only in the United States, but in the world. Um, I take special um, focus on this in all of my work because we represent ourselves as somebody born under the sign that all men are created equal. And yet the man who wrote that owned hundreds of human beings. And so, you know, we're hoisted on our own petard and our own hypocrisy and contradictions are there. So Franklin evolves. He does have some household slave, enslaved people. We don't know whether he let them go. Of all the voluminous writing, there's no proof. We know that a couple ran off and he didn't really put up much of an effort to find them. One ran off in London, as a matter of fact. Um, we do know he started a school for black children in North America and was stunned to find that they were as apt a learners as white students. So it's the beginning of the unlearning of these terrible, terrible aspects of his personality and, and life. And then by the end of his life, he is having forged the compromises, the tragic compromises that create the constitution of the United States and ensure that the Southern states will participate. That is the most uh, ignoble being treating uh, the population of enslaved human beings in the South as three fifths of a person for the purposes of apportionment and representation. 
um, thereby in, ensuring that the Southern states will have a disproportionate legislative advantage up until the Civil War. And the Civil War happens, in fact, because that legislative uh, dis- advantage is being um, diminished by the expansion of states that aren't uh, holding slaves. He, after having done that, participated in those tragic uh, compromises that created the United States of America and its working government uh, that started in 1789. He becomes an abolitionist and he becomes the president of uh, abolitionist society. And he proposes to that government that he has created, to that country, he has been as responsible for any human being on earth for creating, having been the greatest diplomat in American history and negotiating the treaty with France and then later the one-sided treaty with Great Britain in the Treaty of Paris um, that gave the United States its formal recognition. Um, He becomes an abolitionist and proposes to that government that the abolishment of slavery. It goes nowhere in the Senate, the, um, the smaller house, and in the House of Representatives, it's uh, voted down as something that the state should decide and basically ensures that, that the Civil War will happen. Um, but he's there. And so what you see is a life, you know, the key words in the Declaration of Independence are the pursuit of happiness. It's the pursuit, not just happiness. And in the Constitution, a more perfect union. You sort of have a sense that all of us are flawed and that you're making yourself better. There is no American besides maybe Abraham Lincoln, who is more willing to freely admit that this process of life was about a self-journey of self-improvement, not of eliminating those contradictions, but coming to terms with them and, 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 and improving on them and, and trying to uh, make that moral balance sheet, as Franklin thought. Uh, and, you know, so he took ads for the sale of human beings in his newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. He took ads for the rewards offered for the return of runaway human beings who were enslaved in his newspaper, made money from it. Um, And he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out what he could do to balance that that moral, spiritual balance sheet. And that's that's really, Eleanor, admirable and, and interesting to me. Indeed, endlessly interesting. It's such a fascinating evolution of, of character, of, of, of um, personal character, of personal morality, I think. H- how long has, has Franklin been with you and what are you most excited to introduce viewers to about this man? So the, the most important thing to say is that there's always another project going on at the same time or maybe a couple of other projects in the course of a 10 and a half years of Vietnam. Several started finished, completed broadcast while it goes on. So I don't mean to say that it's 10 and a half years, you know, of total uh, singular time. Um, but I'm thinking about him all the time, it all the time and thinking about Franklin. I'd say five years from when we said yes to it, maybe slightly four and a half. And, and then he just is there present in your mind every day. I'm excited to share him in all of that complicated, the kid, I'm, I'm happy to, for those Americans who've, you know, gone through grade school and thought they knew, I always love the, the best thing people tell me is, you know, I had no idea. I learned, so, I thought I knew everything about this, but I learned so much. Soldiers who would say that, you know, um, just people who had, had, you know, been buffs of the civil war or something. And, and that's important. I think, 
And then for those who don't, because I'm making it for them, it's just this wonderful gift. And it's first to us. We make it for ourselves of learning this complex uh, human being. And, and as I said, contradictory human being is redundant. It's just who we are. And so people make a big deal how I'm willing to, you know, show that. I said, this is the only way to tell a story. Um, you know, Shakespeare understood this with fiction. You know, you just, you, 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 there's no character there of any sort that doesn't have many facets and many complicated and, and mirrors the human dilemma. And that human dilemma is very simply, none of us are getting out of this alive. An exception will not be made in your case, and you will live forever. And what you do with your time here, as he said, is what really matters. You know, that the man of words, as opposed to the man of deeds, is like a garden choked with weeds. So on that vein, then, you've made films on topics from uh, baseball to the the Vietnam War that we've mentioned to Ernest Hemingway, another one of those fascinating characters. Apart from subjects that you don't know much about, as you said, what else are you looking for in the subjects of your films? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and, and and I don't know how to answer it really truly because so much of it is um, emotional. That is to say, uh, how why did you pick your best friend? You know, why did you fall in love with that person? You know, you, you can describe the contours of it. There's a thing called a good story, and there's ideas for stories that are in our heads, my head mainly as the boss. Uh, and, you know, you think about them for a long time, and then you learn something, and it just suddenly drops down to your heart or your gut, and you go, yes. And you say yes. It's just, I used the example the other day of of somebody's high school class, you know, that's the, the last four grades of, of what we call grade school. And, um, you know, just about everybody, if not by name, then by face, and you know, everybody by name, half of them, and, you know, acquaintances are a quarter of them and maybe 20 are friends and 10 are good friends and five, you'll know your whole life. Those are the films we make. At some point in the process of consideration, which is a mental thing, there are emotional, and I don't mean sentimental or nostalgic. Those are the enemies of good anything, but but a kind of a, of a deep emotional resonance that you just go, yes, you know, so you just feel. I remember being at a dinner with um, Walter Isaacson, who is one of the biographers of, of Benjamin Franklin and is in our film, and and just talking to him and realizing Oh my God, I have to do Franklin. And, and it's, it's as much medicine for me as it is anything else. And the team you assemble and the enthusiasms that you get, the deep dives into archives, trying to in COVID, you know, mine the best of British institutions and American institutions all shut down and what's online and what's been scanned and what hasn't been and how do you conduct an interview and all of that sort of stuff. And in the end, you start whittling away, you know, and it's, we live in, in New Hampshire and we make maple syrup here, which takes 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. And we, at least on this film, it's probably 50 to one ratio of footage collected to, to, to what's finally used in the film. And I'm just, I love that process. I'm greedy for the, you know, the creative process of it. And so it's a really unformed thing. It's just, you know, 
chemistry. Indeed. And you mentioned that projects don't exist in isolation for you. Can I ask what's coming down the line? Yeah, so we we work uh, on 10-year plans and we're several years into a 10-year plan. Um, I just, the last film was on Muhammad Ali and before that Hemingway, whom you mentioned. Um, We've just finished a film and are doing uh, the mixing and the online mastering of a three-part, six-and-a-half-hour film called The U.S. and the Holocaust. Uh, we're doing a major series on the history of the American Revolution. Uh, we're doing our first non-American topic on Leonardo da Vinci. We've got a biography that's just opened the editing room on uh, the Buffalo, history of the American Buffalo, basically the story of the people who for th- hundreds and thousands of generations uh, used it from the tail to the snort. And then the other people who came in and in three generations brought it to the brink of extinction. And then those same people working with the original people, brought it back from extinction. Uh, We're doing a history of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president after John F. Kennedy and his ambitious domestic agenda uh, called the Great Society, of which still, like the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt, his hero, uh, influences Americans every single day of their lives, whether it's Medicare and Medicaid or civil rights bills that are now being watered down and or, or picked away at, or Voting Rights Act, same thing, or PBS. Um, there's lots of uh, uh, things that are, are benefited from that. And then we're doing a history of uh, Black life in America, African-American life from emancipation to the beginning of the Great Migration, going through a period most misunderstood, the post-war period, post-Civil War period called Reconstruction, which is seen by most people as a bad thing. It was actually a good thing. Its collapse was the bad thing, and it ushered in Jim Crow and the reimposition of white supremacy, the statues that are being debated here, the lynching, the Ku Klux Klan, and the beginning uh, around the time of the end of the First World War of the Great Migration, six decades of African Americans leaving the South wholesale for, as the poet Langston Hughes said, the warmth of other sun. So we're just trying to come to terms with probably the most um, misunderstood period in American history with regard to race, and which is, you know, the central story of America. It just, it is just maybe the world, I don't know, but it's the central story of us and the U.S. And it comes from the contradictions inherent in Jefferson's wonderful phrase that all men were created equal, yet, but, asterisk, all of that sort of stuff. So, I don't know, maybe of the 40 films, five have not been, you know, or under five have not been, you know, consciously about race because you can't do a deep dive into American history without uh, having to confront that, if you're honest. That was Ken Burns. His new four-hour, two-part film, Benjamin Franklin, is broadcast in the UK today and tomorrow. That's the 6th and 7th of April, and it's showing on PBS America. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley.